0: Welcome back. Hour three, the Fan Morning Show. Matt Marchese, Daniele Franceschi. I found your musical interest. It's wrestling. Things.
1: Oh, totally. <laughs> it's right up my
0: alley, man. If I could do a good Tony Schiavone or Bobby Heenan, I definitely <laughs> would have done it there for Hulk Hogan's entrance music. <laughs> but I can't. I can do like a decent Jim Ross, and it's not that great. It's certainly not as good I as I mean, my...
1: everybody's got a J.R.
0: It's certainly not like my Bill Belichick. And I don't have a hood for the Belichick <laughs> one today, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> Fair enough. That's so, by the way, totally off talk, but it's so weird that Bill Belichick's not going to be coaching in the NFL. It's very bizarre. Well, you know, I mean, it's
1: crazy that in the same year, the same coaching cycle, we have Bill Belichick out of the NFL, and we also have the retirement of Nick Saban.
0: There better be a coach's cast between the two of them.
1: Honestly, that is easy money, would be absolutely golden for any of the networks to pick up. It would be a lot of fun. Yeah. A lot of fun.
0: Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more football uh, at the bottom of the hour with Jim Monos, former NFL executive, also part of the Go Long podcast with uh, Tyler Dunn. The great a- Ty Dunn. And uh, so we're going to get – I want to talk about combine stuff because I think we – I get fired up for the combine.
1: Because yeah, you're – you you're On a football freak. Exactly.
0: But there's also things that I think people believe to be true about what we see at the combine in terms of what matters. And I'm not sure that – NFL executives have the same thought process. I would hope they don't because then anybody could be an NFL executive. (laughs) Uh, But we'll talk to Jim Monos in the next block. Um, In a few minutes, we're going to be joined by David Amber from NHL on Sportsnet. I did want to focus a little bit more on on the Leafs here and and talk about the the poll question that we put out. Um, Listen, I, I... I, the question is, what do you want to see Brad Trilliving do at the trade deadline? Big splash, which right now is 31.1%, around the edges, mm-hmm. which is the leader at 46.7%, and let it ride 22.2%. I've said it before. I said it earlier today. I I could envision a scenario where they do nothing, mm-hmm. which I, I don't think that would appease the fan base. I don't think that that's what Brad Trilliving wants to do, but I also think that Brad Trilliving understands that the window doesn't necessarily have to close if you don't win this year. I think they would like to win right now. I think that would be wonderful. I think it would be great for the fan base. But I also, like, we can't get caught up in, okay, they didn't do anything, so it means they're not committed to winning. Part of that process is, what are you willing to pay mm-hmm. to bring in these guys? Like, you, you can't just go out and just throw around first-round picks anymore because you, you don't have those in abundance. You don't have... Second round picks for the next yep. three years, um, and and you're planning on guys like Fraser Minton and Easton Cowan, and I guess Topi Nemo as well to be a part of this future. I also believe that they should really start drafting defensemen because forward is is not your issue. You need to start bringing in some young defensemen. If you were to, if you were to look at this team, would you be okay with it as currently constructed? heading into the playoffs. like, And I'm not saying you have rose-colored glasses because of what you've seen over the last seven games, but more so a question of, when you look at this team, do you think they're good enough? Can they beat the Florida Panthers? I, I think that answer is no. I don't think their defense is fast enough. I don't think they're physical enough. We saw Florida really take it to them from a speed perspective, but also from a physical perspective. I, now, now I will say this, and I'll and I'll let you finish your point. You brought up the thing about toughness. Yeah, Are they mentally tough to beat the Florida Panthers? Because I think that Florida willed themselves over Toronto. I also thought Toronto didn't do a lot of good things in terms of, well, they didn't stand in front of Sergei Bobrovsky. We saw Vegas have a lot of success with that. So I think with those two things being said, I think that's what holds me back from saying they can beat the Florida Panthers in a series.
1: Yeah, I'm skeptical of that as well, uh, in their ability to beat Florida in a best-of-seven series. And if that is the prevailing sentiment among those... like. The, the biggest key, there are two things. Uh, I agree with what you said in regards to roster building. And you don't, it doesn't always have to be all systems go all in every single year. And part of the job of the GM in the front office, it's, it's to identify the appropriate opportunities for when you make those moves and maybe, and you know, we talked about it with Frank yesterday, the market is not very attractive. It's not very appealing right now. Prices are high and there aren't a lot of guys that are going to necessarily move the needle for your team. So if that is the case, then maybe the best thing is to exercise some patience and wait until the opportunity, the ideal opportunity presents itself to actually go out and make a meaningful move that can appreciably improve your roster. Until then, like, you know what, maybe it is the best option to be judicious with how you are spending whatever draft capital or assets that you have at your disposal. So I I I don't think there should be pressure on Brad tree living to make a move. It's not going to appease the fan base, but if he chooses to stand pat, it's probably because, you know, ultimately he didn't want to part with something that they deem to be very valuable.
0: David Amber, NHL on sports and joining us online. This insider is brought to you by Don Valley, North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom, visit Don Valley, North Lexus.com. So DA, we were just talking about Brad for living and this, you know, what the plan may be going forward. And, You know, I look at it in multiple ways. One, I don't think that trading away a first-round pick or any of your top prospects is the thing to do right now because I don't think that you're one piece away unless it is something that helps you for the future. And I could absolutely talk myself into, they're not going to do anything because even stuff around the edges, like they have some depth, maybe it's a, a sixth or seventh defenseman again, but it does really feel like you know, Brad Treliving is going to look at this thing from a long term perspective as well and thinking, okay, I'm not going to go out and sell the farm again because the window doesn't have to close because we don't win this year.
2: Yeah. Good morning, Matt, Danielli. Uh, great to be on the show with you guys. Um, listen, you've laid out a pretty, you know, sensible case to, to taking a measured approach to what you're going to do in the next 10 days leading up to the trade deadline. And, and that all makes sense. The other side of the ledger, though, is you look, Austin Matthews, 26, you know, going on 27, Mitch Marner in his prime, Nylander in his prime, Um, you do want to, you do sort of want to say, when is the opportunity for us? And I agree with you; it doesn't necessarily have to be this year. I think it's a wide open year. I think there's, there's arguably 10 teams that have their eyes, you know, set on we could win a title this year, and the Leafs are probably one of those teams. Um, I, I think it really comes down to what the ask is and how you view your assets. I mean, we all know a first-round pick can be fantastic or it could end up being nothing. And they're going to have to have their scouts and their executives really determine if we're picking 18th, 19th, 23rd, what does that player look like? And on top of that, the players we've already chosen, the Easton Cowans and... Uh, uh, some of the other prospects you'd, you'd rattled off there, Fraser, uh, Minton, every time. What, what, everyone else? W- you know, what's their development curve look like? When Easton Cowan is a legit stud NHL player, if that's what you have them viewed at, where is Austin Matthews? Where is William Nylander? Where is Barr? Where is your nucleus going to be? Is this going to be five years from now? Because that, if it's going to be at twenty-three, we see these sort of. Assets mature. That's very different, and you—it's you, not a matter of you have to sell the farm for today, but you have to recognize when is your window, what is your opportunity. I mean, we have a generational scorer here in Toronto, uh, in Austin Matthews. We have someone who's on pace to potentially be the greatest scorer of all time. A lot would have to happen, but my point is, he's at at this stage in his career, at this many games he's played, he's scoring at a better clip than anyone we've seen. So, if that's the case uh you know your window is it might not be this year specifically but it it could definitely be in the next year or two and if that's the case you have to to move accordingly so i think it's really about assessing what you have uh, assessing what's being asked and assessing what's out there and available um you know we hear the same names right guys so tanev and hanafin and everything else okay what's the most viable and what's it going to cost you and what fits best um, onto this team so there's a lot of questions to be answered there I can't see Brad Trey living standing pat I I don't see a scenario where nothing happens and I know you that's your poll question um, I I think at very least there's going to be some additions to the nucleus and at most there'll be a big splash
1: it's interesting because I feel like when it comes to dealing with you know from your your pool of prospects or any sort of Uh, trade assets that a team might have at their disposal. It's a delicate balance because especially with the Leafs and their cap situation and the amount of money they have invested in those, those core guys, inevitably you're going to need to hit on some young players that can provide value while they're still cheap. And I think it's hard if you continue to go back to that well and potentially ship off some of those assets, then two years down the road, you're searching for that type of player to fill a spot on your third line maybe because they're cheap and valuable and can be contributors at the nhl level so i think that is also a factor in in the thought process of deciding and determining what is the appropriate course of action and if it entails dipping into that prospect capital that you have stored away at the moment within your organization you know uh, david maddie and i there was something we talked about a little bit last week even yesterday on the show um and, and maybe just in terms of priorities for the maple leafs and where their biggest need lies does that come in the form of maybe finding a partner for Morgan Riley on the back end? And I think what's interesting about that question is it doesn't have to be a sexy name. Like last year, they they found a great partner in in Luke Shen. So it doesn't have to be a guy that's going to cost you a ton. But I think it is probably of uh, necessary in order to have success in the playoffs to have somebody that can complement Morgan Riley and play alongside him.
2: Yeah, I mean, you've made a lot of good points there. And to your first point of, of having guys uh, where the team has control of their contract status and that they're at a reasonable price, that's why there's so much stock being put into the return of Joseph Wall. If Joseph Wall can come back and be this serviceable goaltender and play well and stay healthy – the Leafs have just found a million-dollar solution and four other teams are having to spend $10 million on Sergei Pobrovsky. And that could be really what enables them to do other things. You know, when you talk about the cap strap they've been under, you know, Bertuzzi's a free agent. Domi is a free agent. Um, you know, there are other players uh, that they'll be able to, to walk away from. Samsonov if they so choose. So they do have some options and some flexibility there. Uh, knowing that they have a a handful of players that are set to become UFAs uh, and they could basically clear out some cap space. But, of course, you know, uh, Austin Matthews is going to get his raise. William Nylander is going to get his raise. So they've already, you know, spent some of those dollars. Um, But that's a very true point. And I, I think, again, it goes back to how they value their top prospects, you know, what is the window for these players to be serviceable and, uh, you know, players that they can count on to, to bring something to the team. Um, And then when it comes to Morgan Riley, and and as you said, I think you put it perfectly, not adding necessarily a sexy player. And I look back to Tampa, Tampa was great at this. They weren't adding superstars. They were adding, you know, David Savard and uh, Zach Bogosian. And they were, they were adding these these guys, these depth players, these guys that were you could rely on and responsible veterans who, who you could grind out four rounds in the playoffs you know, with. Uh, that's probably what the Leafs might be looking to do, more so than making a massive splash. And one thing that's helped them in that regard is the development of Simon Benoit. Not many of us predicted you know, a guy who was, I think, eighth or ninth on their depth list having the impact he's had, but he's provided exactly that element that they've needed the toughness, the physicality, you know, he plays a disciplined style of, you know, live to see another day. If you have to bank it off the glass, so be it. So I don't know. I, I do think they're going to need more depth. You-, you don't have to look any further than the Florida Panthers who finished last year and two guys, you know, Montour and act <laughs> needed did surgeries. And, kachuk had a broken sternum and they were just beaten up by the stanley cup final they had nothing left to give and uh the leafs know it's not going to be six defensemen that's going to get them there it's going to be eight or nine defensemen we've seen that historically with all the teams that have had success uh you know same with the colorado avalanche same with the tampa bay lightning Uh, you have to have that level of depth on your blue line so you're absolutely right it might not be a big sexy name but it could just be a guy who slots in and you could say he's a serviceable guy he's a stay-at-home guy he's tough he's physical and that's why the names like nick sealer on the flyers have come up and certain players like that who aren't you know maybe household names but to people in the hockey community it's like these are the guys you can trust on and rely and will play a tough physical brand of hockey and can be there for four rounds if it gets that far
0: David Amber, NHL on Sportsnet, joining Matt Marchese and Daniele Franceschi here on the Fan Morning Show. Uh, David Savard is actually a, a really intriguing name for me. Now that I think with one year left at three and a half million, I know it's a little bit tougher to deal with the Montreal Canadiens. It's been done before, um, but that would be a super interesting name to play alongside Morgan Riley. Kind of fits all of those, you know, roles that you'd like big, tough can play in his own end, can kill penalties. I kind of like that idea. Uh, So thank you for that DA. Um, So when you, we, we talked about this earlier, when you look at the roster as currently constructed, what's your biggest concern? Daniele laid out, toughness both you know more mental toughness than physical toughness and i laid out the defensive unit as a whole just because i I look at the defense and i don't see a stanley cup winning defense there when you look at this roster what is your biggest concern
2: well there's a lot of question marks um it's so funny in the last seven games we've sort of seen the, the potential there the leafs at their best right matt like we've seen glimpses of like oh this is what it's supposed to look like when everything's working Um, But the question marks remain Uh, the defense we've outlined, you know, clearly the, 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 you know, the depth isn't there. Um, There's question marks there uh, on the blue line, but I'll go further and say, I wonder two things. One, if they have enough size in the bottom six of their forwards and do they have enough scoring depth there as well? Uh, you know, you look and they, they don't have the biggest group of forwards, um, you know, certainly in their bottom six. And you kind of say, well, where, you know, when it's going to be a grinded out, you know, uh, you want to have your identity there and to establish and, and create space. Do they have those guys and are they comfortable with that group? and And also... You know, we're witnessing something really cool with Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner's on fire right now, setting up Matthews. And that's all great. But we have seen time and time again, the space goes away in the playoffs. Uh, Having to play against the top pairing D and top forward groups, uh, grinding out a seven-game series can be incredibly difficult. And you're going to need depth to pull you through. I mean, Tampa Bay had the Palats and the Barkley Goodrow's and the Blake Coleman's, and they had all these great – secondary players, even when they beat the Leafs in that seven-game series. It wasn't Stamkos and Kucherov killing them. It was Nick friggin' Paul, right? So you need Nick friggin' Paul there. You need those <laughs> types of guys. To me, that is an, an area to be addressed. It's great to rely on your your core four or whatever you want to call them, They're your main guys. But at the end of the day, asking Austin Matthews to score two goals every playoff game or Nylander or whatever, it's, it's not going, going to happen probably. It's going to be a different brand of hockey, and you're going to need your depth guys to be able to score. And that's why it's been great to see Bertuzzi come alive and Domi come alive a little bit. But it hasn't been you know, 60 games of that. It's been inconsistent. So to me, it's, it's adding some depth to their, to their bottom six, and it's adding a defenseman or two. And I think if those things took place... Uh, and Joseph Wall comes back, and it's the same Joseph Wall that we would seen when he's healthy. Then all bets are off, and the Leafs are right there with with all the other teams that are under you know Stanley Cup consideration. The top teams in the NHL they could put themselves in that group, but without that defensive depth and without a bit more of the scoring depth and size, uh, you know, in their bottom six, I, I'm not sure I'd put them right there with the top Stanley Cup favorites at this point.
1: I'm very glad you referenced the uh, the depth scoring, uh, and I think the biggest point of consternation when it comes to the way the core guys have performed in the playoffs maybe with the exception of William Nylander because his his track record has been fairly positive uh, in in terms of playoff production but with those top guys the Matthews the Marner the Taveras they it, it's about I think with them it's less about the counting stats and more about the timeliness of when their production is coming and I think that's what the Leafs need is not as much of like a reliance on those guys scoring you know, carrying, uh, carrying the mail offensively throughout the course of a seven-game series, but doing so in the big moments when you really are leaning on them to deliver and step up a la a game seven, a la an elimination game, whatever it may be when you're trying to close out a series, having those guys be the ones that are driving the bus for you in those moments. And it feels like historically that's kind of where at times we haven't seen it. And I think that's why it's a, it's a great point you make about the depth scoring because – you're absolutely right like it's it's it it's it in the playoffs different type of game that's where those bottom six guys actually become incredibly valuable for your hockey team come the playoffs it's the game gets tighter tougher uh your you know your best players are the focal point of any scouting report and now you need those guys to really produce at the bottom of your lineup to give you an edge
2: a hundred percent a hundred percent and it's funny if you were to go through and the Leafs of course had that you know, horrible record of, you know, game seven versus Tampa, game seven versus Montreal, game five versus Columbus, game seven versus Boston, go through those games, and they weren't scoring goals. Mm -hmm. Their goaltending almost in all of those games played well enough in their defense to win the games, but they were getting shut out or they were scoring one goal in this high, you know, this high-octane offense that we had seen at times certainly during the regular season and even at times in those playoff series uh, were were completely neutered. And that's exactly it. And you can't just sort of snap your fingers and say, you know, we have a 60-goal score, go out and score a goal. It doesn't work that way. And that's why you have to have more guys you can count on. You know, Matthew Nyes will be a key guy for them come playoff time. Can he produce at a level that they hoped he would produce at? You know Nick Robertson, if he's still with the Maple Leafs, this is a guy who's just scored throughout his career. He's he's can score goals, but can he produce uh, in the playoffs when it matters? Those are the types of guys they're going to need. And if it's not going to be those guys, then you have to be bringing in some other players that are going to complement your star player. So, a hundred percent. And I like the way you framed it. It's not you can't just say well. You know, Austin Matthews has played 50 playoff games and he has 20 goals, so that's not bad. It's 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 the timing of it, right? And again, I'm not putting this on Austin Matthews because we all know the, the defense he has to deal with and the, the checking he has to deal with come playoff time is unbelievable. Probably no one gets checked harder than him because people realize and recognize how important he is to the Leafs offense. So other players have to be there to take on some of that burden and take the pressure off those guys and allow them, you know, the ability to, to be good, but not have to carry the team night in night out every single game through the postseason. So that's why when I think we're on the same page, uh, some depth scoring uh, and some depth on the blue line and some size uh, specifically for me and their back six forwards. So I think again, if those things are addressed, then it would put the Leafs in a really good you know, position potentially to win a Stanley cup, or at least to make a deep, deep playoff run.
0: DA seven game winning streak. And, and they haven't all been the same. I mean, that, that goes without saying on any winning streak, but there's been some, some serious, um, you know, we're talking about two different ends of the spectrum here for some of these wins. And when I look at it and I say, okay, what, what is the most impressive victory on this, on this, Uh, winning streak so far is it maybe the first game after morgan riley gets suspended against st louis at home where you're missing riley and marner and and um Uh, Tavares is it the Colorado game on Saturday which you know they did a really good job in you know kind of neutralizing Colorado at points but then Bertuzzi has a big night maybe it's the Vegas game coming off the second half of a back-to-back when you look back at this streak what is the most impressive victory for you the one that maybe instills the most confidence knowing that this team can play meaningful games going forward
2: I think I would take the first period of that Vegas game, Matt. Uh, They scored four goals in Vegas, albeit without Stone, without Eichel, but they looked incredibly good. And what was most impressive about it wasn't Austin Matthews needing to score. It wasn't Mitch Marner. It was all the lines contributing. There was a level of physicality and purpose on every line out there. uh, And defensively, they were very strong. They sort of weathered the storm in the first few minutes when Vegas came out of the gates pretty strong. And then they just started pouring it on, and they hemmed in the defending champs in a way you don't see very often. That, to me, was like where I went, wow. You know, if there was ever going to be a letdown, you know, Morgan Riley was coming back into the lineup. Would they get back to some of their inconsistent play and rely too heavily on Morgan Riley? And that didn't happen. Uh, That was a really impressive victory for the Maple Leafs. And then to follow it up, staring down a two-goal deficit against the Colorado Avalanche. And coming back and winning, I mean, that was also equally impressive. So there's been some really bright moments to the point, and this whole conversation has been about trade deadline and what the Leafs might do and what they need. We've seen the potential of this Leafs team. We've seen at their best what they can provide, and it's pretty damn good. Uh, what's really been the issue with the Leafs is it hasn't been consistent. It just hasn't been a consistent season of that losses to Columbus, losses to Chicago, you know, et cetera, the losses to the Islanders. Um, you know, they just haven't been there night in, night out. But at their best, Matt, we've seen they could be a very good team. I'm interested now they're off the road, they're kind of back into their home settings. I'm interested to see tonight what they can do against Vegas. Right? Vegas is going to play a much stronger game, I would imagine. Cassidy will have them much more focused and ready and prepared. They're not going to come out of the gates and give up four goals to the Leafs like they did five days ago. So I'm interested to see how the Leafs respond tonight. They have the Rangers on Saturday. I mean, we have... This is a really important and interesting week, uh, especially leading up to the trade deadline, to sort of carry this momentum forward and see what we have with Toronto. Um, But yeah, the, the first period of Vegas, I was watching that and I just was you know, awestruck at like, wow, this this, this is the best we've seen the least play this year.
0: Yeah. And uh, the schedule, I mean, it's certainly not a layup after tonight. I mean, they get Arizona on Thursday, but then you get the Rangers, you get the Bruins, you get uh, Buffalo's mixed in there and we know their struggles against Buffalo. And then you get the Bruins again. Um, yeah. And then you get the Habs post trade deadline uh, on March 9th. So yeah, it, it's going to be a, an interesting stretch here. Uh, DA, thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Greatly appreciate it, buddy.
2: Yeah, Maddie, Danielle, thanks for having me on. Take care, guys. Enjoy the games.
0: There he goes. David Amber from the NHL on Sportsnet. That insider was brought to you by Don Valley North Lexus, where you can expect excellence online and in the showroom. Visit Don Valley North Lexus. Dot com. We got a text that I want to get to um, before we hit a break and talk some NFL. Um, this from uh, Donnie and Keswick <laughs> trade Bertuzzi and Domi for first rounders and do your best without them. Use those first next season to load up at the deadline with your off season pickups bingo bango, <laughs> Donnie you forgot bongo that's my favorite part, um, right at the end bingo bango, bongo well uh, I'm gonna say that that is yeah it's not happening beyond unlikely and you would not be getting a first for Tyler Bertuzzi or Max you probably wouldn't even get a first for both of them combined at this point hmm combined no, but that's not, it's, it's not it's happening not. either
1: way anyway. But I think maybe if they were combined, you could probably squeeze somebody for a first. Mm. In this economy, uh, well, there's a in su- this economy,
0: there's a sucker born every day. Um, <laughs> we're going to take a break. When we come back, it's Combine <laughs> Week at the NFL. Um, very curious to see what our next guest thinks about the Combine and what you learn from it. And do do scouts and evaluators learn more than we do? Yeah, it I sure hope valuable. so. Yeah. Uh, Jim Monos, former NFL executive, co-host of the Go Long podcast with Ty Dunn will join us. Matt Marchese, Daniele Franceschi. This is the Fan Morning Show on Sportsnet 590 The Fan.
3: Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkers podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's the final block, the Fan Morning Show. Matt Marchese, Daniele Franceschi with you here. And it's Combine Week ahead of the NFL Draft, which is still too far away for me anyway. But free agency is right around the corner, and there's so many storylines. Um, but I wanted to focus a little bit on the Combine before we get to other stuff with our next guest. This is Jim Monos, former NFL executive and co-host of the Go Long Podcast with Ty Dunn. Uh, Jim, how are you this morning?
3: Man, what's happening, guys? I'm doing great.
0: Uh, Thanks for joining us. Listen, we were talking about like, you know, when we talk about the combine and the things that we learned, when you go on Twitter and you see like all the experts that want to talk about this and want to talk about that and they get so excited about certain (laughs) things. I want to know what are the like, what are the biggest things that you learn from the combine? Because part of me feels like the stuff that we see on TV isn't even where you learn the most. It's in the interviews that these guys are doing that you probably learn the most.
3: So the first thing that I learned is that Indianapolis has a lot of overrated steakhouses.
0: <laughs> that's what I learned. I like it. Um,
3: after that, and that's the most important thing. After that, it is some garbage. I can't get over the fact that what's on TV, that it's, people are paying to come in and watch people run 40s. Never thought it would get to this when I first started back in 2001. I think it was the first or 2000, the first combine I attended. I, I just can't believe it's like this. Now, here's what you do need. The injury and health information acquired is invaluable. That is the most important thing that we're checking. The medical checks on these players is really the most important thing at the combine. After that, it's like a track meet. I mean, after anybody that runs well or tests well, it used to be you may not have known about them back when I did start in the early 2000s. Like, you had to maybe do more work. But now scouting and information is so easy to get. Everything's available. I think think it's kind of passing its time. And Harrison may not do anything this year, Marvin Harrison. And I love it.
1: It's interesting. Um, and you mentioned Marvin Harrison. Uh, I know Romo Dunze is, is participating in all elements of the combine, whereas Marvin Harrison and Malik neighbors aren't going to be present for that. And we'll see if like, I mean, Harrison probably will hold the pro day, but he's not doing anything at the combine. What does this week actually look like, though, from the perspective of a front office executive or a scout? Like, how do you guys go through the process? What do you what does it actually entail from a scheduling perspective, logistics? Like, how do you guys break this down uh, in terms of attacking the week as a whole down in Indy when interviewing or getting to know some of these prospects? Or, as you mentioned, the most important element, having a, an opportunity to review all their medicals?
3: No, it's a great. The, the word you use, attack, is such a good word for the combine. It really having a plan is key if you're going to get something out of it. Obviously, you don't get in a 40-time in a vertical jump. That is not – you can get those on a piece of paper. It is to just be around the players. You're around the players more than you ever are in a setting that is professional and where they're being challenged and stressed. And you can see how they react under pressure. That is one thing you can take from the combine—not pressure like playing in an actual game, getting hit, but just pressure to perform or pressure to answer questions in an interview. We all know that can be stressful, especially for 20 year olds that have never been in a setting like this. So yeah, there's a lot you can find from the combine. Um, I just feel like I just feel like the the track part of it is where it seems a little bit where it's past its time a little.
0: Are
1: there any? Uh, well, I had a couple questions uh, further to to that point, but. One is, are there any drills or elements of the combine that actually provide um, insight into translatable skills that these guys possess? Like, are there any, like, I, I think it's because you can just pull them up on film, have an opportunity to watch them. And I'm sure scouts within the organization have attended games throughout the year to even see them in person. But is there anything that happens throughout the course of these next three, four days on the field that not, I don't want to say actually matters, but that you can actually discern something meaningful from what they're doing. Is there a drill or multiple drills that translate to what's going to happen and unfold in a game setting?
3: I think my favorite thing that I would take from the actual drill work at the combine is to see a player's hands ability to catch a ball, whether it is a defensive back, a linebacker, a running back receiver, tight end. You can't – sometimes on tape, you don't get the necessary reps to really know if they have natural hands or not. When they're at the combine, you get to see – you come away knowing who can catch the ball. I always use – there's players that jump out at me. Ron Darby is a guy we drafted here when I was with the Bills who had every cover skill you could want but just didn't have elite hands and and natural ball skills. And, and, you know, it, it jumped out at me at the combine. I'm like, yep. He just doesn't have that next level to take him to, you know, to become a top, top corner.
0: Jim, um, there, there's one thing that I laugh at every year at the combine because I I play a lot of fantasy football. I certainly gamble do all that stuff, but there's one thing that makes me laugh every year. So I I'm fine with, you know, the correlation between A wide receiver's 40 time and a DB's 40 time in a game situation. There is nothing that I laugh at more than running back 40 times. Because how many times does a running back run straight down the field? It is basically never. Once you break a, a couple tackles, sure. But that's the agility. That's the cone drill. When you look at running backs specifically and their 40 time, is that something that teams also look at and say, we're not concerned about it? You look at some of the top running backs, like I'm pretty sure Kyron Williams ran a 4 6. Or or slightly sub, which is fast for us, but not for a running back. And then you see some guys that they run like a 4-3, and you're like, oh, my God, this guy's going to be a great running back. It's like, well, no, you don't run in a straight line. How do evaluators look at 40 times for running backs? Do they focus maybe more on, like, cone drills for agility, stuff like that? Or does the 40 time for, as long as you're not running, like, you know, a a post 4-6, then that's fine. But is that something that they look at and say, you know what, we do value that at least a little bit?
3: No, I think you hit it perfectly with just don't overvalue the 40 time for a running back, for any position. I mean, the way you were saying that, I was laughing, thinking about, why do we want to see an offensive guard run 40 yards? (laughs) I mean, it's amazing. And and to your point, I don't care about – I think you always use it, and I always use the term fatal flaw. I just want to make sure there are no fatal flaws in a player at the combine when I see their times whether it's a 40 time, a vertical, because if you see a, when I say that, like you said, if it's, a, if it's just a slow time, just make sure, and you probably knew he was slow and there it is. So you know what you're getting. That's probably a one contract guy. You know, I, you know, who's, I'll tell you, here's an example of a guy that's not going to blow you away ever with a 40 time, but tell me you don't want him on your team is James Connor, the running back yeah. from Pitt. Mm-hmm. Promise you he might run a five flat right now. <laughs> just watch him but i'm telling you you want him on your team so that's 40 times for you for running back.
1: No, I, I think, and that's a great example because he's a guy that plays a bruising style and like the toughness that he brings to your team in general. I really like that example because he's talking about a guy that's invaluable. He's invaluable to what the Cardinals have been doing and whatever they're going to continue to do moving forward uh, with he and Kyler Murray in that backfield. Um, I did want to, I have one more on the combine specifically, Jim. Have you ever been a, in a position in your experience through the years as a scout, as a director of of player personnel, been in a position where your opinion has appreciably changed about a player through the experience of attending the combine, maybe seeing them in person, even just interviewing them. Has that happened for you uh, throughout your years as a talent evaluator?
3: So I used to call the final day of the combine, um, after the last, it was always the secondary would always finish the combine. Like the safeties would finish, be the last group. Or actually, whatever the last group was. And then everybody goes to the Indianapolis airport to get their flights home. And you see everybody used to say, you see all the scouts in there with their laptops up changing their grades. Because they, all, all the 40 times are official, and they're just changing their grades. And they, didn't, they can't believe that guy didn't run fast, and he stinks. And it's like they had a, a bad game because they didn't run well. Or they ran really fast. And now you're raising your grade. You're like, oh, I was, I was too low on him. That's what the combine does. It can drive you crazy. But I will tell you this. Like Cyrus Quanjo from Alabama, when he ran his 40 time, it made me want to take everything back. You know, everything I saw on tape, I was like, oh, no. This, he, he, this isn't good. You know, you, you, it, it was so slow. It goes back to the fatal flaw. And I should have paid more attention to it. And Doug Marone put me onto it at the time. He was like, He can't move. And I'm like, You're right, Coach. You know, at the end of the day, Doug Marone was correct on that one. Yeah. You know, I thought maybe still he was so you know, he had all that physical skill set that you look for in a tackle. But at the end of the day he just didn't move well enough.
0: Yeah, I remember Cyrus Quanjo very vividly. Um, Has <laughs> a Bills fan. Um, okay, yeah. so wanted to move on to and Jim Monos is our guest here, former NFL executive, and co-host of the Go Long Podcast with Ty Dunn. Um, I'm looking at free agency right now, and I, you know, every, the last few years it's been the quarterback carousel that's been super intriguing, and then you get the the odd. Um, you know, wide receiver trade that is a blockbuster. It's like Tyree Kill and Devontae Adams and and AJ Brown. Uh, this year, I mean, I, I do want to talk about the running backs in a second, but there is this notion out there that the Vikings are entertaining trade offers for Justin Jefferson. This is wild to me because it's not like he's old. He's Been the best receiver in the NFL, arguably, over the last two years. And he's putting up, like, video game-type numbers with, you know, some decent quarterback play, some subpar quarterback play, whatever it may be. But it doesn't feel like a guy that you should be trading. If anybody would, like, the Vikings should learn this from, you know, the Titans with A.J. Brown. They didn't get enough back, and it didn't work out for them. And it's not like the Chiefs who have Patrick Mahomes. So it doesn't usually work out in your favor. How do you welcome the idea of the Vikings trading away Justin Jefferson, even if it's for a bounty. The only thing I
3: can think about that they're, they must be considering is if, they're, if they feel like they're going to lose Kirk Cousins, then all of a sudden maybe this season becomes not a wash, but it becomes a complete unknown. And now if you're looking, I don't want to use that word rebuild, but if you lose Cousins and aren't sure you have the quarterback in place, to make an, a real, you know, legitimate playoff run, then Jefferson becomes your valuable commodity to, in a rebuild if you lose Cousins. So that is the only thing I can see. Because other than that, you do not want to use lose a playmaker like this. No. That's the only thing I can think of. What do you guys think? Does that does that sound I'm I'm curious because I'm with you. You don't want to lose
0: Jefferson. Well, even the thing is is he's young enough that even if he's even if you have to rebuild for look at the Green Bay Packers. Look Mm -hmm. what the Green Bay Packers did. Now Jordan Love was in the system and what but if you're Minnesota and this season goes poorly Okay, let's look at the the Houston Texans are probably the best example. If this season goes into the tank for you, and you can get a, a quarterback with a top five pick and turns your season around, guess what? Bear it's gonna up. it's gonna help a lot if you have a guy <laughs> like Justin Jefferson for him to throw the ball That's to. What, I'm saying. what, what yeah, are we? Yeah, pair him up, Jim. What are we? What have we taught you and I have been on the air plenty of times together. We've talked about like what the addition of a star wide receiver does for. Any quarterback. Look at what Stephon Diggs did for Josh mm-hmm. Allen. Look at what AJ Brown did for Jalen Hurts. Look at you know we, we could go down the list. It, it, there's a there's a you know we've seen it right. Look at what Tyree Kill did for Tua Tagovailoa. Even though I don't think Tua is very good, but that's another conversation <laughs> entirely. No, that, that, that goes that backs up your point though to Tua. I mean exactly it exactly. Agree, so yeah. so having Justin Jefferson in your building, you got to pay him. But that's what happens. When you have good players, you got to pay them. So I just don't, like, even the fact that this notion is out there, it's totally mind-boggling to me that there would even be a thought of trading away Justin Jefferson. Would the Cincinnati Bengals entertain the, and they have T. Higgins in their building, would they entertain the thought of trading Jamar Chase? I don't see that. Why? Why would you do that?
3: No, you don't mess with, you know, if, if you're serious, you know, you're exactly right. He's young enough. You this get this off the get this right now. Come out and say no, no, no. He's with us. we he's staying. Mm-hmm.
0: Justin right. Jefferson is twenty four. He's going to be. Yeah. be twenty five exactly. in June. Like, come on, this is they, this is crazy can. talk.
3: Yep, this is this is the time of year, though. This is it. That's it's true. That's, when you go crazy, it, it's true. It's, it's,
1: yeah, silly season, Jim. That's a hundred percent silly season. Yeah. I I am with both of you, though. I I agree on the Jefferson point. I was I was stunned when I saw that pop up yesterday, and I was just like, "This." I mean, we'll. See. I don't know how baseless, but I was going to say it's a bit. It's it's one of those offseason rumor mill stories that routinely gets tossed into our timeline just for the sake of being able to have something to bemoan about for a couple days uh, during this cycle you know the Chicago Bears Jim I wanted to get your thoughts on what's going on with them and obviously they're on going to be on the clock first overall um, or at least for the time being they still currently hold the number one overall pick and as we're getting closer to draft season here the conversation about you know what do they do with that pick Justin Fields in his future does it end up being Caleb Williams I guess this is a sort of a two-part question in the sense that do you view Caleb Williams as that, as a can't-miss guy that would merit moving off Justin Fields? Or is it a scenario where Justin Fields has more to give? There's a higher ceiling still in play, and maybe they would be better served, the Chicago Bears, that is, in potentially trading this first overall pick for the second consecutive year.
3: So you use the good old can't-miss, yeah. like this is like our lock of the night. Um, to me, like, just like Trevor
0: Lawrence was. Well, yeah. that's that's not that work out? That's sort of the
1: barometer I'm using here. Is like I think if if he if people deem him to be a can't miss kind of guy, right, a generational transformative figure, shouldn't even be a thought. That then you it shouldn't be in. a conversation. Yeah. But if if evaluators and people aren't convinced, then I think it's a real conversation.
3: So my personal, uh, yes, I would draft Caleb Williams and move on from Fields. And it's not, it's not a knock on Fields. It is a compliment on Williams. That, I do think he warrants this pick. Um, I think there's a gap after him in this draft quarterback-wise. So I think he is that much better. Fields, to me, I'd explain it like this. The ceiling for Justin Fields, to me, is Cam Newton. And he's not close yet to Cam Newton. Cam Newton did a lot of winning on his way up whether it was a junior college whether it was a horrible auburn team whether it was his rookie year taking a terrible team and started winning so let's not forget that it's like justin fields as much as i do like justin fields as a player and what he's gone through in chicago has not been easy i mean he doesn't win i'm not blaming him and wins aren't the final stat it's not like pitching but come on now
0: like where's the value
3: yeah, it's this so to me, Williams. Williams warrants this pick, and, and you move on from Fields.
0: And then you, and then whatever you get for Fields, you, you put into your roster. Maybe it's adding a wide receiver uh, in the second round. Cause I think the price for Fields is a second and a fifth. I would even go as high as a second and a fourth if I, I was another I like, team.
3: I, that's a great, I talked about this last night a little bit with somebody, and we were talking about that. I don't, I think a second and a fifth would be a. Really happy for Chicago would mm. be really happy
0: with that. I'll look at Pittsburgh and say, Pittsburgh, you should pay the price for just the fields based on what you have a quarterback <laughs> yes, oh, or yes, the or the, like Atlanta Atlanta the Atlanta Falcons, yeah. Atlanta Falcons that, I mean, if you don't get, if you don't get Kirk cousins, that's the move that I would make. Cause I think Kirk Cousins is a good I, fit there.
3: I don't think Atlanta will go after fields. Yeah, And here's why they had their chance. You missed the good number. Like in gambling, mm-hmm. you missed that closing back. Yep. You missed that. You missed the good number. You had a chance. You passed on them. Now you're going to, now you would overpay for him, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, listen, Jim, we're uh, tied up against it here. Thanks so much for taking some time, as always. Greatly appreciate it. And uh, look forward to chatting with you in the future, pal.
3: Definitely, guys. Good luck.
0: Thanks. There he goes. Jim Onos, former NFL executive and co host of the Go Long podcast. Uh, so we don't have a lot of time. So maybe tomorrow, I do want to have a conversation about the running back situation in oh, the yeah. NFL. Oh, yeah. Uh, and this T. Higgins thing, which is so interesting. It's crazy. Because um, somebody's like, well, if they could get a first for T. Higgins, he'd be out the door. And I'm like, if I'm a team, I would be offering up a first-round pick for T. Higgins. For T. Higgins? Yeah, I that's, would ah, be. Interesting. I I really would. Like a late first for T. Higgins? If, if you are – now, it would never be Kansas City because, I mean, that's – that's the spot. Mm-hmm. Cause there's no way that Cincinnati is trading T. Higgins to Kansas City to help them get better. No. Patrick Mahomes no, doesn't no, need no, any. Help no,
1: no, 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 no. Yeah, they are and they are not helping the Chiefs, that's no. for sure. <laughs> uh
0: so we have uh a Blue Jays lineup for today. They'll take we on do. a split squad Tigers team um in Lakeland. Uh Clement, Escobar, Kirk, Vogelbach, Horwitz, Martinez, Roden, Lantigua, Robertson, and Alec Manoa on the hill. And <laughs> as be <Jada laughs> pointed headliner. out. You know, this is not going to be about numbers. It's going to be about what the slider looks like. It's going to be about what the fastball looks like, mm-hmm. if there's any life on it. And command just, and, of the strike and zone. Command of the strike zone. I don't care if he hits a couple guys, because that's that's what we expect from Alec yeah. Manoa. It's yeah. when he's afraid to pitch inside on guys, that's what I'm going to be worried about Alec Manoa and where its headspace is at. But I'm very intrigued to, to see what happens with him today.
1: I am very excited as well. Very excited because I have been on the... The Manoa train, the bounce back train, all along I am firmly in his camp and I and I believe in the player. So I am eager to see him put it all together, hopefully, this spring training, have a productive spring and be back in the Blue Jays rotation in 2024.
0: I just think that if I think you're gonna get a lot out of Kikuchi this year in a contract year. I think if if you get if you get any semblance of what we saw from Alec Manoa in year even year one. With Gosman, Barrios, and Bassett, boy, oh boy, you may not need, you may not need, have to hit a lot you know, with those guys.
1: Watching Kikuchi yesterday for the first couple innings, the pitch clock has worked wonders for that guy. He's yeah. a completely different pitcher now, and all it took it seemed like was for him to almost stop thinking, yep, and just just go out there. Grab the ball, step back on the rubber, and throw another pitch.
0: And that's it. And a, he's been a completely different guy ever since. 100%. That's what I said. The pitch clock was going to affect Alec Manoa, and it was going to affect Yusei Kikuchi 100%. in opposite ways. 100%. And it worked out. Okay, we got to get out of here. Thanks to all our guests <laughs> that joined us. Thanks to Jeff and Josh. Behind the glass, thanks to Danielli. We'll be back here tomorrow. Fan morning show. Have a great day, everybody. Chat tomorrow morning.